was lost, you came and rescued me. Reached down into the pit and lifted me. Oh Lord, such love. I was as far from you as I could be. You know all the things I've ever done. Jesus' blood has cancelled everyone. Oh Lord, such grace to qualify me as your own. There is a new song in my mouth. There is a deep cry in my heart, a hymn of praise to Almighty God. Hallelujah. stand firm on this rock my life is hidden now with Christ in God the old is gone and the new has come hallelujah your love has lifted me Come into your family, for the Son of God has died for me. Oh Lord, such peace I am as loved by you as I could be. In the full assurance of your love, and now with every confidence we come. Oh Lord. Such joy to know that you delight in us. There is a new song in my mouth. There is a deep cry in my heart. A hymn of praise to Almighty God. Hallelujah. And now I stand firm. On this rock my life is hidden now With Christ in God the old is gone And the new has come, hallelujah Your love has lifted me Many are the wonders you have done And many are the things that you have planned How beautiful the grace that gives to us all that we don't deserve, all that we cannot turn, but as a gift of love, your love has lifted me. There is a new song in my mouth, there is a deep cry in my heart, a hymn of praise. To Almighty God, hallelujah. And now I stand firm on this rock. My life is hidden now. With Christ in God, the old is gone. And the new has come, hallelujah. Your love has lifted me.
presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean how marvelous how wonderful and my song shall ever be how marvelous how wonderful is my savior's love for me for me it was in the garden he prayed not my will but thine he had no tears for his own grace, but sweat drops of blood for mine. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful. Is my Savior's love for me. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone how marvelous how wonderful and my song shall ever be how marvelous how wonderful is my savior's love for me Ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see. Twill be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. Savior's love for me. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love Amen. You are in wonderful voice. Praise God. Do grab a seat. Thanks, Trev. Thank you. Well, children, it's always great to have you here on a Sunday evening. And we're doing some really um, big stuff with the adults here. But it's, some of it is stuff that you can get hold of, and I know you do. And the one thing we're thinking about tonight is a very short word. It's the word sin. Can you tell me what the middle letter is? Only three letters. What's the middle 
letter of the word sin. I, isn't it? The letter I. And if you remember nothing else tonight but that, remember that one definition of sin, it's I. It's I wanting to be God instead of letting God being God. So you've got a sheet. You might be able to follow some stuff, but there's other things that uh, adults are there to help you with. But we want you to go away knowing what we've just sung. How wonderful, how marvelous is my Savior's love for me. So there's one of the sheets, but uh, you've got your own there. And if you're with us for the first time this evening, it's really great to have you. My name's Trevor Archer, one of the members of the church here. Uh, and tonight I've been given uh, the short straw, really. It's, 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 I don't know how this happened, because it wasn't meant to be. I was meant to have grace, but no. I, I've got the doctrine of sin. But actually, to get excited about a lecture about the doctrine of sin might seem a little weird, a little perverse. But actually, if we can get a grasp, by the time we go out of this building tonight, on the nature and the extent and the implications of sin, of rebelling against God, that it has on the world that we live in and upon every one of us, then if we can get hold of that bad news, then it makes the good news all the more glorious. So that's my aim this evening, that to understand how bad bad really is and how bad the Bible says sin really is, in order that we might go away saying, how wonderful, how marvelous is my Savior's love for me. Well, you have a sheet, uh, and that's to, if you lose me at any point, hopefully you can, you can catch up with me or whatever. We live in a world and a culture that trivializes sin. In fact, it even celebrates certain sins. The world we inhabit minimizes the extent of the human dilemma and the problem of sin. It believes that the answer to the question, what's wrong with the world, can be not easily, but eventually answered by human effort. The obvious evil and wickedness that we see all around us, that we see on our TVs day by day, can be eradicated eventually by better education, better economic conditions, better laws, better philosophy, better religion, whatever it may be. Given time, we as human beings can solve the problem of war and conflict and hatred and murder and violence and greed, exploitation and all the other ills that fill the world. One of the most popular songs of my generation, Imagine, John Lennon's Imagine, Imagine a World. But when you look at that song, when you hear that song, you realize it's a dream, a utopian dream. You may call me a dreamer, sang John Lennon. Yes, John, you are a dreamer if you think that we as human beings can solve the problem of what's wrong with the world. It's a very catchy tune, it's a very pervasive tune, but it's not right. We can't do it. We can't. In fact, you have to live in cloud cuckoo land to believe that that kind of Disneyland utopian dream 
is able to solve the problem that we grapple with on the mega scale internationally, on the national scale, on the individual scale, within ourselves, within our families. And I say that because the whole of human history points to the inherent wickedness of the human heart that surfaces in every generation. You've got to ignore history, every generation of history, to believe that we can solve it. You really do have to live in some never, never land to think that. It's to ignore reality. It's on par with thinking that uh, Diet Coke might be the cure for cancer. It's ridiculous. It doesn't take the nature and the extent of sin seriously. And the reason for that is it doesn't take God seriously. And that's a deadly mistake on so many fronts. The Bible, on the other hand, is brilliantly realistic. As we saw last week in Genesis 1 and 2, and here I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to test you. If you can remember the two R's from last week. Remember the two R's from last week? We, we, talked, we learned about what it means to be a man or woman, about humankind, about the, being made in the image of God. And, and Reese summed that up in two R's. Anybody remember what they are? Yeah. Resemblance, Resemblance and... What's the second one? Relationship. relationship. Well done. Give yourselves a pat on the back over there. Relationship and resemblance. We're made to resemble God in his moral purity, in his creativity, and we're made for relationship with him. As uh, Rees concluded last week, he, he cited that great... Uh, uh, theologian of early centuries, Augustine, our souls are restless until they find their rest in thee, O Lord. We're made by God for God. We're made for relationship. There's a phrase in Genesis 3 we're going to look at in a moment that is brilliantly evocative. It talks about God walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. That seemed to be the pattern of how they live. It's such an evocative phrase that, isn't it? Walking in the cool of the day. It's a brilliant phrase. That's what we're made for. But as the book of Genesis unfolds, and Genesis 3 especially, we see a disastrous event that changes everything. What's wrong with the world? Well, it's hard to better the answer of a 20th century novelist called G.K. Chesterton. Apparently, the Times newspaper many years ago ran a, a, invited people to write in to say, what's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton wrote in. Dear sir, he said, in answer to your question, what's wrong with the world? I am. I am. I'm the problem. I'm what's wrong with the world. In a way, he was mirroring what we're going to look at tonight in Genesis 3. The problem ultimately isn't out there, it's in here. It's in here. Now the reality is, as we open the Bible, in Genesis 1 and 2, and as we go into chapter 3 and 4, we discover that we are fallen masterpieces living in a fallen world. Now there's so much in creation, isn't there? In the world we inhabit. 
which is stunningly, breathtakingly, overwhelmingly brilliant. The beauty of a majestic mountain, the glory of a sunset, the overwhelming vastness of space. Have you ever laid on your back out in the country and looked up into the vastness of space? You feel so, so minute. All around us, the very creation breathes artistry and glory and wonder. The very DNA that we're made up of is just unbelievable, isn't it? The world we live in is a masterpiece. And yet, as we all know, alongside that beauty and creativity, we know that all is not sweetness and light. Far from it. Nature is raw in tooth and claw. The creation can be a frightening place. Earthquakes swallow whole towns and populations. Tsunamis can sweep away hundreds, thousands of people within an hour. Droughts decimate whole countries. Disease is rampant. The creation is amazing. It is a masterpiece, but it's flawed. It's a flawed masterpiece. Then what about us? Human beings, each one of us, are capable of sublime acts of kindness, creativity, courage, thoughtfulness. Today, centuries after their death, we still celebrate the artistry, the art, the music, the inventions of people of earlier centuries. We marvel at the wonder of great buildings and great bridges, of life-changing inventions, of cures to incurable diseases. You see, like the world we live in, we ourselves, we are a masterpiece. Just look at your hand for a moment. It's, it's a masterpiece of design. It's incredible. We are, as the Bible says, fearfully and wonderfully made. But as with creation, all is not sweetness and light with us. Because we're capable of inflicting great evil and suffering upon one another. History is littered with this, with gulags and concentration camps and gas chambers and mass exterminations of ethnic cleansing, of children being taken from the Ukraine into Russia in the very day and hour in which we are living and being remodeled. We live in a world that's still feeling the effects of slavery and still has to deal with the modern day problem of slavery. We twist great inventions to inhuman destruction and death. We murder, we rape, we lie, we steal. The reality is we too, like the very creation, are a fallen masterpiece. Now that Bible reality is unfold, unfolded for us in Genesis 3 that we come to now. Theologians have called what happens here 
the fall, the fall, the fall of the masterpiece, the fall that affects both us as human beings and the world we inhabit. Let's read, if you've got your Bible in front of you, just I'm going to read a few verses from Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. (laughs) You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is sin in the 15 minutes we have left to us now? I've just got eight headings here for us to take away, eight aspects of sin that we can see here in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. And it was there in those first five verses. Firstly, sin is doubting God's word. Do you remember Jesus called Satan the father of lies? All lies ultimately originate in him. That's the essence of who he is. That's why it's appropriate. He was a a snake. Because he is a snake. He's a liar. He hates God. He hates God's people. He hates God's creation. And his main line of attack is always to call God's word and God's truthfulness into question. He does it here, doesn't he? Did God really say? See, Satan used that ploy with Eve. He tried it many, many centuries later with the Lord Jesus. Do you remember those, those temptations in the wilderness? It was all about God's word and what God had said. And even then he... He always twisted him to try and get Jesus to fall. He tries it with you and I today. If we're a Christian, we know that. Tempting us to question whether God can be trusted, whether he really is good, whether we can trust his honesty and goodness. You will surely not die. Come on, grow up. Sin, you see, is doubting God's word. And it's impossible to measure the magnitude of Adam and Eve's foolishness here. Instead of living by faith, that is, trusting God's word. That's what faith means. Faith is not nebulous. A lady said to me once, Oh, I wish I had your faith, dear, as if it was like the measles, something that you catch. Faith is not like that. Faith, Bible faith, is simply believing what God has said and trusting him to keep his word and living by it. So sin begins with doubting God's word and then you see it leads to the rejection of God's word. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was given Adam and Eve as a constant opportunity for them to love God, to show their love for God by obeying him. He'd put them in a place of incredible liberty and bounty and wonder. Just one thing they had to do, which was the test of their allegiance to him. It was not to touch that tree. 
the tree of knowing good and evil. Now, it's important we know this. Knowing good and evil is not wrong because God knows the difference between good and evil. The issue is this. The temptation was this. Knowing good and evil was the temptation to decide what was good and what was evil. Oh, you can't trust God. He's trying to keep something from you. You can decide what's best. You can decide what's evil. That's the temptation. The temptation that they fell for was thinking that they knew better than God, that they could decide better than God. Deciding the difference between good and evil is brilliant if you're God. It's a disaster if you're a human being. The point is, in this act of rebellion, of rejecting God's rule, they declared war on God. Colossians 1 verse 21 says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. Underlying all sin is this act of rebellion. Another R, rebellion, rejection. Sin is also breaking God's law. There are three key words by which the Bible describes sin. One is the word sin itself, which simply means falling short of the target. If you come here, I think it's on a Tuesday evening, there's an archery club that meets in this hall, and you don't want to be walking about on it because they have serious archers in that place, unlike this one. And there's all these targets at the other end here. We might think that sin, falling short of the target, means falling short of the bullseye. It's not. Sin is not even coming anywhere near the board. It's as if I was to come in here on the Tuesday night and try and hit the board. It will be going anywhere and everywhere but at that board. Sin is falling short. The second word is the word iniquity, which means moral impurity. Moral impurity, ethical impurity. And the third is the word transgression. From we get the word trespass. We know what that is, isn't it? Stepping over the line. The Bible uses all those three words in different ways to give us a scope, a roundedness, as to what it is to break God's law. In reaching for the apple, Eve overstepped the boundary set by God. And sin, sin leads, you see, to law-breaking. The law just brings our latent rebellion to sight. Now, you know the local authority have recently introduced 20 mile an hour road speeds in this borough, yes? Anybody driven around the Hook Road lately? Anybody had difficulty driving up the Hook Road at 20 mile an hour? This is not confession time, but if you, yeah, if you join me, I do. I instinctively, this is ridiculous. If it wasn't for the law, it wouldn't be a problem. The fact the law is there, I suddenly have, I know better than that. You see, that's what the law does. It, it, it's not sin. It actually just reveals the condition of my heart. That's what God's law does. Sin is also ingratitude. 
Paul, in commenting upon uh, Genesis 3, writes in Romans in the New Testament, in chapter 1, although they knew God, they neither glorified God nor gave thanks to him. But in their thinking, they became futile and foolish. Their hearts were darkened. At the heart of sin lies ingratitude. Remember, the Israelites, what were they famous for, sadly? What's the, the one thing they were famous for in the desert? What was it? Grumbling. grumbling. They grumbled. Grumbled. It's one of those words, isn't it? It just says what it is. They grumbled. I'm at the age and stage. I have to be careful not to be a grumpy old man. You know, ingratitude... Ingratitude is just endemic in us. A number of people who, even Christians, I'm afraid, who I might say to her, oh, how do you get on at the hospital? Oh, can't grumble, can't grumble. No, you can't grumble. You've got no reason to grumble whatsoever. You're amongst the most privileged person in all the world because Three miles up the road, there's a hospital that you can get care of, which millions and millions of people in the world have no access to or hope of access to whatsoever. What's there to grumble about? But you see, it's the nature of sin. It turns us into grumblers. Israel grumbled against God. They grumbled against his kindness and they turned it on its head as if he was vindictive towards them. You see, refusing to recognize our utter dependence upon God, who is good and generous, is just ingratitude. That's what's going on here. Sin is also subverting God-given roles. You see, God made a brilliantly ordered world, and living into submission to him, he put male and female. Husbands were to lead they were to provide. They were to protect their wives. Wives were to support and submit to their husbands. Together, they were to rule over the creation itself. Instead, they rejected God's rule. And what happened? Everything got turned inside out and upside down. Adam abdicates responsibility to Eve. It's a big male problem ever since, isn't it? He passively follows her lead away from God. Eve was deceived. And instead of ruling over the animals and the creation, Adam and Eve were led astray by a serpent. So part of God's curse is that the roles become filled with conflict. Remember what it says in Genesis 16? God says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. She will want to seize his God-given authority. He will want to use that authority to rule over his wife, to abuse, to exert his physical strength in oppressive ways. So that which God has created as beautiful is corrupted. It's turned on its head. And then you think about the creation. 
we're so environmentally switched on these days, aren't we? But back there in Genesis 3, we were to care for the creation. But instead of caring for it, the history of mankind is that we exploit it, we pollute it, we use it for our own ends. Sin turns our roles inside out and on their head. Sin is blaming other people. Do you remember this in the narrative? What does Adam do? Adam blames Eve. What does Eve do? <laughs> she blames the servant. And in fact, if we read on, Adam has the affront to actually blame God for giving him Eve. The woman you gave me made me do it. The most pathetic male statement of all time. The woman you gave me made me do it. It's, it's not my fault, God, it's your fault. I mean, how perverse is that? You see, that just shows the perversity of the effect of sin upon us. It's been characteristic of sin ever since. We evade responsibility for what we've done. We blame other people. We blame our circumstances. We blame our hormones. We blame our upbringing. We blame anything and everything. I'm not minimizing that some of those could have been very bad. But it can't get away with just blaming them. Because we use it as a cover for our sin. We portray it as inevitable. I can't help myself. It's just who I am. Oh yes, it's not what you're made to be. The tragedy is we won't admit wrong. Now the pastor here this morning gave us a rendition of Blue Moon. I'm not tempted to follow suit, but there is a song isn't there by Elton John sorry seems to be the hardest word sorry seems to be the hardest word why do we find it hard to say sorry you parents here with the little ones why do you find it hard to get them to say sorry how anybody could ever believe in the innate goodness of any human being, whether they're a little, little child, little toddler or not, I don't know what world you live in because it's all there in the raw. I'm not saying sorry. It's endemic to us. We always want to shift the blame. We always want to blame somebody else. In my, in my work with FIC, I'm often finding myself trying to help churches where things have gone terribly wrong or leadership situations. And what I've learned to ask them and ask myself over the years is this simple question. What is it about me that other people can see that I can't see in myself? Because if I can, I can say sorry. It actually opens the door to not remorse, to repentance, to reconciliation. But oh, <laughs> Elton didn't have much right in his words, but he got that right, didn't he? Sorry seems to be the hardest 
word. Sin, seventhly, is slavery to self. It's a form of slavery. In Genesis 4, God says to Cain, sin is waiting to pounce on you and control you. Jesus in the gospel, in John's gospel says, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Sure, we're free to make our choices. Of course we are. We have a God-given decision-making capacity. But now our choices are fatally undermined and affected by, by our twisted desires, by our self-love, our deep-seated bias against God. Sin has a hold on us. And we know this. It's a corny old thing, isn't it? But you know what it's like. Try going one day without telling a lie, without thinking an impure thought, without saying something nasty. It's impossible. (laughs) We make our New Year's resolutions and we find some of those, if not all of them, impossible. But this is even more serious, isn't it? We can't. We're a slave to it. We're a slave to it. Paul says in Romans, all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that brings us to our last one. Sin is falling short of God's glory. You see, as we have been outlining, we were made as human beings as the pinnacle of God's creation. No higher value and worth could have been put upon the human race than that. That's who we were. Made in God's image. Made to represent God in his world. Made to look after his world. But after Genesis 3, after the fall, the image of God is corrupted, distorted. We no longer reflect the character of God as we ought to. And by the time we reach Genesis 11, we read of the people trying to build a, build a tower, the Tower of Babel. And we're told by Moses, the writer of Genesis, that they did it, quoting them, we will make a great name for ourselves. We'll build this tower up into the skies, up into the clouds. We will make a great name for ourselves. Instinctively, our pride, which is at the heart of sin, leads to self-promotion. We want to glorify ourselves, not the God who made us, not the God who loves us, not the God whose image we're made in, not the God who showers us with his kindness day after day. And the result is catastrophic. The outcome of Adam and Eve's rebellion has far-reaching consequences for every successive human being and generation because it now introduces an alien intruder into the world. It brings death. Physical death, our bodies decay and die. We live in a culture that wants to try and deny the reality of death. It's the unspeakable subject. You can talk whatever you want about sex or about all sorts of things, but don't mention death. It's the taboo thing. But 
Sin brings physical death. It also brings spiritual death. We lack the power to live as we should. We're separated from the life of God. There's a physical death. There's a spiritual death. There's an eternal death. Forever separated from God. The source of all joy. And it has catastrophic effects upon the created order. Romans 8 tells us how the whole creation has has been subjected, cursed, if you like, to frustration. Not by its own choice, but by the choice of him who subjected it. So God has inflicted the fall on creation to remind us that this effects of sin are all pervasive. That's why there's earthquakes. That's why there's tsunamis. That's why there's disease. That's why there's death. Now in summation, we need to understand that this doctrine of sin is not just a matter of behavior. I want us to go away realizing it's actually a matter of our nature. It's who we are. It's not just that I do bad things. It's that I have evil inside of me. As Paul puts it in Romans 7, the good that I want to do, I don't do, and that which I don't want to do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, he says. That's the conflict. That's the reality. It's the problem of our nature, the old nature. The marvelous thing is that in the gospel, God gives us a new nature to overcome that old nature, to live alongside it, to conquer it. But the heart of sin is a matter of our nature. G.K. Chesterton was right. Dear sir, the problem is, I am. I am. But secondly, sin is relational. That's why David cried out to God in his murderous adultery against you and you only have I done, done sin, done this thing, and evil in your sight. Sin is, first and foremost, against God. It's a defiance against him. It's a rejection of his rule. It's why the Ten Commandments begin with four commandments that are all to do with our relationship with God before the latter six move on to our relationship to one another. If we don't get the first one right, we'll never get the second one right. If we're not at peace with God, if we're not reconciled to God, if we're not living by God's law, we can never live at peace with one another. It's an impossibility. So in that regard, every sin is relational. It has a relational impact. We know that when we stop to think about it. The very nature, the essence of sin, is a matter of our nature, and it affects our relationship with God and with one another. We are indeed fallen masterpieces living in a fallen world. John Calvin, that great theologian, summed it up in two words. He called it total depravity. Now, we need to understand what he meant by that. He didn't mean that human beings were totally depraved in the sense that we were thereafter incapable of great acts of love and kindness and courage, all which reflect how God made us. He doesn't mean that. What he meant was this. That as human beings... We are fatally marred and spoiled, totally marred and spoiled, in the sense that 
the effect upon, of sin upon us, morally, spiritually, physically, upon our will, means that by nature, we are without God and without hope in the world, as Paul puts it in Ephesians. That's a desperate place to be in. Well, it's pretty bad news. In fact, I can't think of any worse news than what I've just been sharing with you these last minutes. But, but, there is great news. The greatest news in all the world. We can't do anything about it, but we know a man who can. That man is the Lord Jesus. As one of the hymns puts it, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. It entails the greatest story the world has ever heard, ever will hear. It tells us of the greatest rescue that's ever been affected and can be affected. It tells us nothing less and the greatest news in all the world, that God himself became a man, took on human body, a human form, in order to redeem and rescue humanity. In a word, gospel. In two words, good news. Good news. As Paul puts it in Romans, with this we finish, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You must be born again, said Jesus. Yes, we must and we can. We're going to close with a great hymn of an earlier generation written by the Wesleys. And it, it unfolds the whole kind of story of salvation. But Wesley describes that point where we become a Christian like this. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, the dungeon flamed with light. We don't have to stay in darkness. We don't have to stay in death. Indeed, God calls us out of it passionately calls us out of it and his passion is seen in the enormity of the sacrifice of his son he's willing to give his very best to rescue you to rescue me what a god what a savior what good news that the world needs to hear tomorrow morning when we're in our schools and our workplaces in our schools in our communities there's nothing like it in all the world but unless we understand the seriousness of the disease we won't apply the right cure. There's only one cure. It's in Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reality of your word. Father, we thank you that as we dig into it and press it, we're amazed as its, it's, it's relevance, its contemporary nature. Here's a book that understands us better than we understand ourselves. But here's a book, here's a story, the greatest story ever told. That you didn't leave us in the pit. You sent the Lord Jesus Christ to go into the pit to rescue and redeem us. 
And if we know you tonight, Lord, we do rejoice in that. And we long that for our friends, our family, our neighbors, our workmates. Lord God, show your mercy, even through us this week, we pray in the Savior's name. Amen. Thanks, Dave. Let's, uh, let's stand and sing that song together, And Can It Be. Can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me, who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be?
was great. Have a seat, and uh, we'll finish for tonight. I couldn't help uh, but think of a quote from Tim Keller that's been shared from the front before. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believed. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Next week, thanks Trev for that tonight, and next week we will look at that Jesus Christ, the one cure to what we talked about tonight and so much more. So for the next two Sundays, we'll be looking at asking that question, who is Jesus? And I hope tonight has uh, made you think all the more why we need to know him and have our faith in him. If you're part of the Crosslands course, we're going to make our way to the other side to Fraser Chapel here in just a moment. If you're part of the, uh, the membership course that is going on, Membership Explored, that'll be happening immediately after this as well. As well, there's coffee and tea in the back, so I encourage you to enjoy that. I'm going to close our time in prayer. Let's pray. How blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. Lord, we come to you this night and we have been presented with a picture of reality that we must all come to terms with. Lord, thank you so much in your gracious way of opening your word to us tonight and giving us a glimpse into ourselves that perhaps we don't want to look at. Lord, we thank you so much that your word so accurately portrays what's wrong with us, what's wrong with the world, but also so clearly points us to your love, your grace, your mercy, and to the one who will make all things new. And so, Lord, we pray this night that we would leave not with a sense of dread and not with a sense of no hope, but that the hope that we have in Jesus would ring true in every heart this night. Lord, if there are those among us who as we sung these songs and celebrated could not say with confidence themselves that Jesus is their savior, that they want that joy, that peace, to be the one who's blessed to have their sins forgiven. Lord, this night I pray they would turn to you in faith and say yes, yes to your rule, Yes to your reign. Yes to your love. Yes to the sacrifice you made for them, for all of us. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.